Well, right. Good morning, uh, and welcome to the uh, fourth podcast in this uh, in this series of six. Uh, as you know, I've tried to link uh, my guests to various chapters of the, of the book. Um, I'd like to welcome Carl Watkin, MBE, this morning. Good morning, Carl. Um, uh, good afternoon from uh, from less than sunny Australia or on the Indian Ocean. Here in Fremantle, Australia. I've linked, uh, Carl, to the chapter that I wrote about embracing failure and, um, and the lessons that we can learn for it. You know, the old expression, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, Carl is an extraordinary uh, man who I've known for probably 20 years or more. Uh, I'm proud to call him a friend. He's certainly someone who, more than anybody else I know, has been through the highs and lows of business. Um, he's been one of the wealthiest men in Britain. He's wined and dined with world leaders, famous rock bands, politicians, sports stars. He's owned private jets and boats, and I don't mean small yachts. We're talking kind of full-time crew of 12 uh, with a fuel bill, more than probably many people's annual salary. Um, American Express, I seem to remember, gave you your own executive assistant for a while. That was fun. Um, But also, you've experienced terrible lows as well through a series of bad luck and poor investments. You've experienced bankruptcy, uh, you've had health issues, uh, and you fought back. Uh, And the second time around, you're looking at deals now that are every bit as big as the deals that you successfully executed before. Um, I know that you're currently writing your autobiography, What Could Possibly Go Wrong? And I'm sure you'll tell us. But more importantly, you know, it's, it's often said that it's not how you, you fall down, it's how you, uh, it's how you get up again. Uh, and you've found the tenacity to, to do that. Um, and I'm fascinated at trying to get inside the psyche and understand how, how that's happened. But do you want to kick off, Carl, by, by just talking a little bit about your, your story? Uh, what made you successful in business? Um, and, and kind of what happened, you know, looking back? Tell us, tell us how, how all this, these kind of, this roller coaster came about. Um, well, I mean, you know, it, it starts, uh, it starts in a place called Wall's End, and if there is a rough end of Newcastle, it is Wall's End, um, which was a very much a working class area where I was largely brought up, um, and uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't have the greatest of childhoods to say the least, um, but that's a completely separate matter, but. Turning to business, I think a very similar situation to yourself. They, uh, when I was 13, uh, my father had been a miner and he'd left the mines and he'd become a policeman. And when I was 13, the, uh, I was expelled from school. And uh, the reason eventually I was expelled from school was trying to uh, have sex with one of the girls in the back of the physics lab one day. Um, but it was just the final straw. I was a complete disruptive influence. Um, uh, and now, of course, I'm completely unchanged, and now I'm an agent for change instead of a disruptive influence. And uh, it was a disaster for my uh, my father, at least he thought it was, um, and uh, brought massive shame on the family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we had to move, we had to move house because the, there was no other school in the area that would take me. And we moved to a place called Morpeth, which is uh, 30 miles away, but is a completely parallel universe compared to Wall's End, very much a middle-class market town. 
And uh, I arrived there and started school on the Wednesday. And uh, on the Friday that week, it, one of the guys that I met at school that week was a guy called Rod Arthur and invited, invited me to a party. And I went to the party and uh, I asked my parents first if I could go. And then I went to the party and they sent me on a Friday night as a new boy uh, to a party with teenagers in my school uniform. <laughs> anyway, Rod met me at the door, pissed himself, uh, uh, told me to take off my tie, my blazer and uh, my jumper. And we went in and, he, and I walked through the door and uh, he said, right, this is Diane, you're with her. And uh, I sat on the uh, seat. Diane jumped on my on my knee and started slogging my face off. And I thought to myself, if that's the worst that can happen, bring it on, you know. And since then, uh, I have never been frightened to take on any challenge. Um, people think that I take risks, um, and I don't take any risks at all. I don't gamble. Uh, but I don't take risk in business, or at least I try not to. Um, and from that moment that, you know, no matter how bad things could be, you would always find a way to get out of them. I think that's that was the one thing in my life that really changed my life more than anything else and made me able to take on any challenge. And there's been many challenges over the years. Let me just jump in there, Carl. Let me just jump in there. Uh, just to talk about the influence that our fathers have on us. I'm come from a similar background, awkward relationship with my father, who, when I got thrown out of school, took me aside and said, we'll always love you, son, even though you'll never amount to anything. Uh, which I didn't know whether, looking back, whether he did that out of frustration or because he thought that would be uh, a motivating chat for me. But looking back on it, it was probably the most motivating thing that, uh, the, that was ever said to me because I thought, fuck you, I'll show you. I'll show you what I made of. Uh, and, and from then on, even though he's no, not here anymore, perhaps a lot of what I'm striving to do is to keep impressing my father. Do, do you have the same kind of connection when you look back at the relationship you had with your dad? Um, well, I didn't really have a relationship with my dad after the age of 13. He never spoke to me again. And he hadn't spoken to me much before then. Um, that's, it's, it is an interesting look on life. And uh, I never cease to be amazed at how many people uh, like ourselves, had the same historical situation, same experiences, and they've they've gone out and they've taken on the world. Um, I'm not sure personally whether I'm ever doing it to uh, to prove to my dad. Um, and I had a, the other problem was that when I was in uh, when I was at school, um, because I, I've got a, the attention span of a bored gnat, um, and they thought I was thick. And once you're labelled as thick, you become thick, you know. And in the first year of grammar school, uh, I was in 1C, and I ended up being bottom of 1C in that year. And that had a terrible effect on my life as well. And, you know, the uh, there is no question uh, that all of the people at school um, that knew me then are astounded with what I've done in my life. Um, but I'm not sure that I did that to stick it up them either, you know. I mean, you know, there's the old saying behind... Behind every successful man is an astonished mother-in-law. And uh, my mother-in-law was immensely astonished because uh, the last thing she wanted me to do was to marry her daughter. And uh, that happened. Anyway, we uh, fast forward to uh, to getting into business. And um, I, uh, when I first, I, I really started business when I was at school, when I was at Morpeth. And I was buying selling cars um, during the week. 
um, because I was bored shitless at school. And um, I was buying cars on a Tuesday night at the Newcastle car auction. I would spend a couple of days uh, cleaning them up, polishing them, making them a little lot better, and I would sell them on a Friday and Saturday. And very quickly, I, um, I came to be able to, within six months, I was able to buy my first sports car, which was a Triumph TR4 a bright red. And I punched around more within my Triumph TR4A, like the flash bastard that I was rapidly becoming. Um, and uh, it's interesting when you look at your book, Eat the Pudding First, uh, I'm in complete agreement with many, many of the things that you say in there, uh, not least of which was when I had my red sports car, people asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, by the time I'm 30, uh, I'm going to have uh, paid for my own house and I'm going to have a Porsche 911 and it'll be a new one. And uh, people said to me, well, uh, how are you going to do that? And I had absolutely no idea how I was going to do that. But that was my objective in life. And uh, a lot of people rubbished me for saying, saying that. But your book proves the case, you know, eat the pudding first. Um, Thanks. Keep uh, and and uh, anyway, I, I started off um, as a trainee salesman, actually filling shelves in the supermarket for United Biscuits, which was McVitie's when I left school. Um, I left school on the Thursday and I started school on the, I started work on the Monday, sorry, uh, when, when I was 18. And I, I had two, jo- two job offers. One was the uh, filling shelves in supermarkets and the other one was working for the local newspaper selling adverts, uh, both paying 1,200 quid a year. Um, but the, the one filling shelves in supermarkets, you've got a, you've got a brand new out of the box Ford Escort. So there was no competition. I went for the, uh, the, that job. And then I did that jo- job for about nine months, which was all I could stand. Um, it was absolutely doing my head in. I was working by this time as a DJ night, seven nights a week, uh, with people like Elton John, uh, Dave Lee Travis, uh, Noel Edmonds. Paul Burnett, Kid Jensen, fans, people. And uh, I was working seven nights a week and I was making more in a night uh, as a DJ than I was making during the day when I was working for uh, McVitie's. And quite why I continued doing it, I don't know. And then my boss, uh, my boss became ill. He had a mental breakdown and he was the key accounts manager. So I did his job and my job as well. And then, and I was knocking hell out the figures. And then what happened next was that... Um, uh, they decided that they would retire him off, and they retired him off, and they advertised for the job, but they didn't. Have, they didn't uh, even interview me, uh, which really pissed me off. And um, and then to add insult to injury, when they appointed the new guy, they asked me to train him for a month in the job, you know. And on the first day of, of training him for the job, uh, I was at a nightclub that night. And on the morning, I bumped into this woman who had only just met. And everybody knew that, that, that United Biscuits had screwed me over and what a good salesman I was. And so she said that her husband was looking for a key accounts manager, which was exactly the job um, that I'd been turned down for at United Biscuits. Only he was with Heinz. And that she, should, she would fix me up with an interview. And I just said, yeah, OK, because I was, a, I was really irritated on the day. And... Um, and then that night, I was working the nightclub, and uh, Jill, my my wife, uh, she it was her night off. We'd met in the nightclub. She worked behind the bar, and she was at Newcastle University at the time. And she was standing talking to me, and this guy comes up uh, completely out of the blue and asked if he if asked me if I if I minded him dancing with my girlfriend. So he danced, 
And uh, as fate would have it, that was Brian Chapman, who was married to the woman I'd seen earlier earlier in the day. Anyway, Jill and Brian got talking and they uh, they uh, came back and uh, Brian said, hello, I'm Brian Chapman. I'm interviewing for a key accounts manager. Um, can you come for an interview tomorrow? And I said, yeah, okay. He said, right, be here at quarter past five. So at quarter past five the following day, I walked in and, um, and uh, he stood up. He said... I am sick of talking to fucking wankers. The job's yours. Let's go and have a beer. I didn't even get interviewed, you know. So I started I started working for Heinz. I worked for Heinz for 24 months. And 23 of the 24 months, I was the UK's top salesman. And uh, I also became the holder of the, uh, the world record for the world's biggest ever sale to one store. And that was in 19, uh, 1978, and 40-odd years later, that record still hasn't been beaten. So I still hold the world record for the biggest ever order of Heinz goods. Heinz were a funny company. Uh, you had to start work at half past eight, and you had to leave. You couldn't leave work until half past five. Didn't really matter what you did between half past eight and half past five, as long as you were there. Well, of course, I was getting in at three o'clock in the morning, usually pissed from being a DJ. Um, and so I was turning up for work at about 11 o'clock. Uh, and then I'd have a cup of coffee and a, a sandwich. And then I'd not off at about three, go home, get ready for the night working again. And of course, uh, this attracted their attention after quite a while. Didn't uh, sit well with the work culture. It didn't so didn't so well. Yeah, well, as you, as you well know, I'm un, completely unemployable. Um, and so uh, they were going to, they were going to, they did completely the wrong thing. It was, it was incomprehensible to me. What they should have done is they should have discovered what it was that I did between 11 and 3 and then got rid of 80% of the sales force in the country and got everybody else to do that. But they were, they were, uh, they were going to uh, fire me, basically. And that came at a time when I was getting a bit fed up with the music industry because, as you know, uh, people in the music industry have got very few ethics and don't pay their bills on time. And it coincided with um, uh, Jill and I. We used to go on holiday all the time. We went to uh, Mos Moscow and, and Leningrad for a holiday. And one night we we're in the uh, the Interest Hotel in in uh, in Moscow, and there was this guy, and he had this big fur coat on. He's obviously having a, a ball, you know. And I said, "That guy's got a great job." And Jill said, "Well, go and ask him what he does." So I went to ask him and he bought me a drink and uh, it turned out that he was um, the international marketing director for Combine Harvester. And he, he had a great job. He had a fabulous life. He flew around the world, staying in five-star hotels, just the job. So a couple of days later, we go back to, uh, to England and uh, there's an advert in the paper for a Vickers company, a company called Crabtree Vickers. And... It was an insane advert. And again, for your people who are listening, uh, it, it's, it's a lesson in life. Um, the advert was for a training export manager. And uh, you, had to, you had to have uh, an engineering degree. You had to speak fluent German, fluent French. You had to have five years uh, capital sales experience. And there was one other thing which I always got. There was five things anyway. And of course, I had none of them. But fate was... Fate was uh, intervening, so I thought I'll apply for the job. So I applied for the job, and I was amazed when I got an interview, and I was even more amazed um, when I got the job. 
And so I packed in being a DJ. I, I had market stalls as well. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. I'd been running market stalls in Edinburgh and Newcastle for, for about four years. I packed in the market stalls. I packed in the, uh, the, the DJing. I was managing a band, Child, which we got into the charts uh, twice in that year. Um, and uh, I got married. And I started uh, doing a business studies degree course at Newcastle University. Uh, which was part-time and night-time, you know, which was tough going. And then I started work as a training export manager. Um, I worked as a, uh, an export manager from 1979 to 1985. And between 82 and 85, uh, starting actually in 81, I was actually living most of the time in China. Um, and uh, it was a very interesting time in China at that time. There was, there was no cars. Everybody was in, in Shanghai. There was 25 million people on bikes and there was no foreigners and uh, you know people used to follow me there was no hotels either and people used to if I left uh, where I was staying people used to follow me and ask me questions and you know, sometimes as many as 50 or 75 people and if I ever stopped uh, to look at something they would all stop and I wonder what it was that I was looking at and there was piles of vegetables at the end of each street turnips and cabbages and you just used to go and help yourself if you needed food and I, I did really well. I, I got 100% of market share in China for my, for my company, and our biggest competitors were German and Japanese. So I did exceptionally well. In fact, so well um, that in 1985, the Chinese economy collapsed. Uh, they had no more foreign exchange. And so I went back home to discover that um, the whole business of Crabtree Vickers was based on China. And with the market collapse in China, Oh, they lost about 90% of the business literally overnight. Just let me, let me stop you, Scott. So you, you, you're telling me a, a myriad of successes where you've been working for other people, selling, doing well, changing job, moving up the ladder, selling, doing well. And I know Crabtree is a bit of a turning point. Do you think, uh, how, how did you make the leap from being an employed person, doing well, earning well, to actually then owning businesses and understanding the kind of financial dynamics of buying a company and, and turning it round. That's a big leap. It was just total fake, Gary. I mean, the bottom line was I did the plan. I presented it at the board. The board said, no, we're not going to do that. So I thought, fuck it. So I went to London and uh, I saw Sir David Plaster, who was the chairman of the company. And I said, this is, this is my plan. He says, great plan. He said, but we're not going to do it. So I thought, oh, well, I'll take a job. I'll take one of the other jobs that I've been offered because the company's going to collapse. And then I thought, no, that's not the right thing to do. Um, and it was about the time when Margaret Thatcher was, was, uh, uh, had introduced management buyouts in the, in the country and they were, they were growing red hot. And I had a mate who had done a management buyout. So I went down to see him. And he had also worked for Vickers. And uh, I literally, after I saw him and realized what he did, because it was just such a fantastic opportunity, you put 25 grand into a deal, you did a management buyout, you leveraged it all up. And if it was successful, you made a bloody fortune, you know. Um, it was a no-brainer. I, I, I literally flew back to Newcastle under my own power. Um, and uh, and I said to David Plass, would he sell me the company? And he said he would. Went to Candover. Much to my surprise, they lent me the money. And we did uh, we did a management buyout. There was four of us in the team. And uh, we did a management buyout. But by the time we'd done the management buyout in October 1986, the company was in, it was literally within weeks of collapse. And we were going to, uh, we had a launch uh, to tell everybody of our plans, which were to develop a new machine, um, which we'd never done before. We did another guys to develop machine, machine, and that was going to cause us huge problems afterwards. And uh, 
upstairs we had all our customers from the UK telling them how great our new company was going to be. And downstairs we were meeting with the liquidators, considering putting the company into uh, into um, uh, receivership. Anyway, uh, we we pulled some stunts. I, I flew out to Hong Kong at Christmas uh, that year, and I managed to pull off a, a really big order, which would give us three months' work. And then I focused the the whole uh, company on um, developing the new machine, and that's all we did for the next nine months. Is we just developed the new machine, um, and we didn't have many sales uh, at all, and and we lost two members of the original management buyout team. So it was down to myself and a guy called Matt Cooper, who unfortunately now is now dead, and uh, it, for us to take the company forward, and you know, eventually, we had a lot of failure. I mean, you know, on uh, the machine was so, when we went to launch the machine at the exhibition in Dusseldorf in Germany, we couldn't make a machine. We'd, you know, the thing that we had there was just a, very much a prototype. And on the first day, a guy from Crown Court and Seal came to look at the machine, loved it. Second day, he bought his boss. Third day, bought his boss. Fourth day, bought his boss. Fifth day, nobody came. Sixth day, uh, Bill... Bill, uh, I get his surname, who was the chief executive of Crown Cork and Seal, arrived on the stand. And uh, he said, I want to buy your machine. I said, yeah, great, okay. And he said, uh, I said, well, yeah, we'll get you one in nine months, 12 months. And he said, no, I want that one. And I said, oh, okay. He said, and that was a disaster because the machine didn't work, you know. Uh, but we were desperate for money. And uh, he said, how much is it? So we went, I said, just give me a second, because we hadn't even thought about what the price was going to be. And I went outside with Matt. I said, Matt, how much should we sell the machine for? He said, well, 150 grand would be a great price, okay? I said, right, fine. So I went back in, and I said to Bill, um, Bill, 350 grand. And I saw him reach for his checkbook, you see? Uh, and I said, and that's with a 50% down payment today. So he gave us, he gave us 175 grand there and then on the spot. So uh, the next day we're on the stand, it's 20 to 10. And, uh, and uh, I literally, I couldn't see, you know, and everybody, would, and this new, another customer turned up on the stand, a guy called Patrick Vinshedler. And uh, he said, yep, yeah, I want a, one of these 1200 machines. Uh, here's the 50% down payment. So we've got another 175 grand. And then every day for the next six days, we, we sold 24 machines in total for, for that price. And, you know, that wasn't really success. It was failure, failure, to be honest, because when we started making the machines, they weren't working. We had to put engineers. We were, in the end, we were putting two engineers in every box with all the machines that we sent out the door. Um, but from, from all the failed machines and, and, and getting them put right in the, in the field, which took us about 18 months, we eventually succeeded, you know, and we had a, we had a great machine. Um, and uh, when we'd first taken over the, com the company on the Dun & Bradstreet reports on everything, you know, on the performance of the company, there's the chart, here's the worst performance, and we weren't even on the worst performance. Here's the best performance we never applied like there. By that time, which was uh, about 1990, was just before the uh, invasion of Kuwait. We were off the planet on every scale on the Dundon Structure. We'd improved every single aspect of the company. And on top of that, um, when we first took over the company in 1986, if we wanted a uh, if we wanted an apprentice, we would advertise, we would, we would 
interview 20 or 30 apprentices and we might get one, you know. By 1990, we were taking 20 apprentices every year and we got the top 20 apprentices and we only ever had to offer the job to 20 people because they all came. And then the Gulf War came, which just goes to show uh, that what can happen to you, um, you know, you can be the greatest people on God's earth and, and the best performers. Um, but uh, the Gulf War, the, 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 the QA and the market collapsed, everything stopped, people cancelled orders, nothing, just nothing happened. Uh, and uh, it was a bit of a coincidence because we did our second management buyout just before the invasion of QA, timing, timing is everything. And uh, we'd borrowed for the Candover, who were the main backers of our company, uh, wanted to do, uh, wanted some success for the 10th anniversary. And they offered, offered to let us buy the company out from them. And I didn't really want to do that because they'd been great. They were fantastic guys. Uh, and so I went down, I did a presentation. I told them exactly what we were going to do in terms of profits in the coming years. And the profits were, went up exponentially, 24% uh, year on year profit and turnover growth. Anyway, they were hell bent on selling out to us. We just had to find the money and uh, we had to find 4 million quid. And uh, we uh, managed to persuade NatWest Bank to lend us 4 million quid. Gulf War came along, yeah, the Q8 war, sorry. And uh, the new bank manager demanded 2 million pounds back. And of course, we didn't have it because of the war. And we were facing bankruptcy for the second time. And uh, um, I had some, I have and still have today, some really good friends in Hamburg and Germany who are our agents and very wealthy guys. And I rang him up and uh, asked him if I could borrow two million quid from him. And he said yes. And that afternoon, he put the two million pounds into our bank account that saved the company. And then we decided because that had, that had happened, the QA war ended, all the orders came flooding back in. We decided that things weren't necessary in our control, so we would list the company. And uh, we were just uh, looking to do that. It was about 1992, I think, uh, when our mutual friend Luke Johnson approached me to do a reversal into one of his shell companies. And so we did that for 20 million quid. And uh, I stayed on as chairman of the public company for 18 months. Um, but it was quite apparent that the, that the board, uh, really didn't want me there. Um, and so I resigned. Carl, I want, I want to kind of focus really on the sort of takeaways that people watching this might be able to, to learn from. And when, when you look at your early career, you've been a salesman and you've been a manager, and then you became a sort of financial engineer, understanding how to put deals together. Where do you think your sweet spot uh, has been? Because you've done deal after deal after deal. You've done a lot of very successful deals back to back. Was it about the idea? Was it about the execution as a manager? Or was it that you got the financial structure right? I think, um, well, first, firstly, uh, you know, yeah, I've had a lot of successes, but I've also had a lot of failures, you know. Um, and... Uh, and some of what the marketplace considers my greatest failures, in my opinion, were my greatest successes. Um, coming back to the question uh, of what do I think? I'm absolutely useless at 99% of everything. You know, uh, There's only one, one thing I'm really any good at, and that's actually getting things done and uh, seeing a way forward to getting things done as well. That, that 
uh, I have an uncanny ability to be able to see a way forward and to also forecast what's going to happen. And, um, and uh, what you need to do is, is you need to have a vision for the business, which, which, which you can sell, but more importantly, have a, a really robust team um and to to, uh, to build around you so i i have a i have a uh, a good mate he was uh, he was my best man actually and i was his best man and he never employed anybody that was better than him and the result is that the business was only ever as good as he was right whereas it's a very easy thing to do. I always get people who are better than me, you know. Uh, and as I said, it's no benchmark, but I always get people around me who are a lot better than me. And with and so my strength has been uh, in in building teams, identifying amazing people to put in those teams, leading that team with a with a with a vision uh, that people can believe in. And because I'm only any good at making making sure we stick to the knitting to concentrate everybody's minds on the on on what it is that we're doing and to make sure that we do that you know uh, and generally the teams that you take with you carl are they incentivized with equity or do you tend to do it with salary and bonuses um uh done it with done it with both i mean uh done it with both and you know uh, i've given equity away to people um and it's ended in tears uh, I've given, I've let people have equity in the company, and it, it's helped the company to succeed. You know, um, there's no question about that. And and, it, and it's great to see people making uh, making uh, significant gains out, out of their work. And you know, I've always had you know the public companies that I've had. I've always even the non-executive directors. I've always ensured that they had shares. Getting more difficult these days because of box stickers in the city. Um, but uh, I've done I've done. The, the more the more successful the deals have been in the public arena uh, I've done deals with uh, venture capitalists as well but uh, apart from the Crabtree one Crabtree one was very successful but then it was successful because they allowed us out of the deal to have the second to do the second management buy it before we did the listing um, and uh, yeah so you know it's about great teamwork it's about uh, keeping everybody focused, inspiring them to deliver uh, a vision beyond their dreams. You know, that's it. And, and that tenacity that you talk about, and, and, you know, I'd say you've got as much grit as anybody I've, I've met, uh, that tenacity has, has kept you going through uh, good times and bad. So when deals are doing well, you tenaciously make sure that they happen. When they, when they fall over, you've, you've managed to pick yourself up and not let yourself get disillusioned. Uh, I, I did for a while in 2013 and 14, to be honest. Um, but that was a very difficult time. And, uh, yeah, you know, through thin and thin, it's, it's, uh, it's all been okay. Sorry, what let, was the question? Let me, let me ask you a difficult question, though, Carl. You got to an extreme level of wealth. We, you know, we talked about the boats and the, and the private jets, and I was lucky enough to be invited on, uh, on commitment. And that's kind of love, my love of super yachts started. But how did you let it? How did you let it slip through your fingers? It was a series of uh, of uh, bad decisions, really. I mean, the uh, um, it was mainly the two thousand and seven uh, global financial crisis, um, to which I was 
very exposed. I mean, I, you know, if you'd asked me uh, a year before if I was exposed, I would have said no, and they just laughed. In fact, they did laugh at me. I did laugh at my bank manager. Bank manager at Barclays Bank, great guys. And I had a super, super bank manager. And he used to regularly come to the house and say, you know, you want to pay down some of this debt. And I'd just laugh in his face, you know, because it was all about getting bigger and bigger and bigger all the time. And during the global financial crisis, uh, I, I'd done quite well out of a couple of copper mines I owned in, in Urumuchi in China, and then um, some gold mines in the south of China, which are listed on the London stock market as China gold mines. And then uh, I'd acquired 12 molybdenum mines. And the, uh, the price of molybdenum, we'd agreed a deal subject to uh, force majeure uh, to selling the, the company for $196 million. Uh, of which $80, $80 million was mine. And uh, the GFC hit. And uh, what happened was that uh, the price of molybdenum went from $14 a pound to $8 a pound in a period of 10 days. And, you know, no matter, how, so the deal was off that we're selling the company was canceled. And uh, you then think, well, what am I going to do? You know, so and the, the, the overheads were half a million dollars a month. So the first month went by, I paid the half a million dollars. Second month went by, I thought, oh, still don't know what I'm going to do. Another half a million dollars. Third month, I thought, fuck me, that's a quick month. Um, and, uh, and the fourth month, I closed it down. And, uh, and that was 90 million US down the pan. And uh, I built up a company called D1 Oils, and uh, uh, D1 Oils, um, we'd sold out to BP, and I was chairman of D1 Oils. I actually started the company. We ended up with 350,000 employees. Uh, when I retired as chairman, uh, Ron, Lord Oxborough, Ron Oxborough, who was then chairman of Shell, he took over from me as chairman of the company. And we just sold out to BP. We sold out 50% of the company, we had another 50% to go and uh, I was supposed to sell my shares and, and leave but of course Ron super nice guy persuaded me to stay the shareholders who wanted me to stay in with my shareholding and, so, and, and it, it was a bit of a no-brainer because BP were going to every year we're going to buy more and more of the company out and the price was, was going to escalate and uh, and so I was persuaded and uh, and anyway BP screwed it up and uh, that cost me 50 million, uh, you know, 50 million here, 90 million there. Uh, sooner or later, you're talking real money, you know. And uh, and because of the, the, the bank debt, I was underwater. But it was no big deal because Barclays were very supportive, um, uh, amazingly supportive, to be fair. And uh, um, for about three, four years after that, they, they really looked after me. Um, but the only what do you think? What, what do you think that the, say, perhaps first-time entrepreneurs that might be watching this can learn from battle-scarred uh, old-timers like us? What advice would you, would you give them uh, about leverage? I mean, you've been caught out. We've both been caught out with, uh, with leverage. I bought a, 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 public, uh, a public company, did a rights issue, rescue rights issue. Uh, we owe the bank six million quid. I paid down four million in the debt, and the, and the day that the uh, bank thought they could sell us, for more than the debt, they threw us on the rocks. So I've, I've also made these terrible errors, but we've done it again and again and again. What what advice can you can you tell people? Uh, in terms of dealing with banks, banks have completely changed now, Gary. Over the years, you know, uh, uh, in our day, 
you had proper relationships with relationship managers. Um, and that's not the case these days. In fact, they've become know, transactional rather than well, relationship-based. Transactional instead of relationship. Uh, and you're right, you know, uh, they'll, they'll lend you an umbrella when the sun's shining, the old saying, but they'll take it in when it, when, uh, when it rains. Um, and it, it, it is a shame to be so cynical about it, but, but that's the way it is. I, I really, uh, I'm not sure that I have any advice other than uh, to get out there, kick ass and take names, you know, and if you're committed, you've got a great team of people, you've got a great product, um, then, you know, the world is the world is full of people who don't do anything. So you don't have to be amazing to, uh, just to just to do something, you just have to get it done, you know. And I always used to say, I have the story about uh, asking a group of people to come next Monday morning at eight o'clock to my office with a brown paper bag with six green apples and another brown paper bag with six red apples in it, you know. And to find out how many of them would turn up with the right thing, you know, some of them would be late in bed, they'd miss the bus, uh, they'd buy the wrong apples, they wouldn't have a brown paper bag. Um, and that's all it's about. It's about delivering what you say. And sorry, here's the bit of advice. Do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it. And if you can't, tell people as soon as you can. It's interesting. There's an old expression, isn't it? It's, um, it's easy to be successful in business. It's not about being good. It's just about outpacing your competitors. It's about being better than the people that you're competing with. And, and Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, uh, I, people call me a businessman. I hate being called a businessman because all the people that I know of which you I've are heard you called worse, by the way. Sorry? I've heard you called worse. Yeah, no. well, if fifty percent of the world don't hate you, you're not. What you're, you're not, you're not doing enough. You know, if you're not, uh, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Um, yeah, all the businessmen I know uh, make money by screwing other people. You know, and I honestly don't believe that I've intentionally ever screwed anybody. I've I've always wanted to deliver, deliver the best product with the best team that I can, and I have a laugh. You know, and uh, and if you're doing that and you're not. Uh, I, I was uh, I was a founder of a company called UK Land Estates, which was a property company, and UK Land Estates made its money out of screwing its tenants, you know, and it was a it was an amazing business, uh, but I just couldn't be a part of, part of it because it, it it didn't go along with my ethics. So I left, you know, um, and and that that decision of leaving the business probably cost me eighty million quid, uh, because it you know five years later it sold off uh, really well, you know. You've got a strong sense of right and wrong, uh, I've noticed, uh, Carl, and and that's uh, spilt over into the community uh, as well. And and you know you've earned an MBE for services to to industry. You've also stuck up for for, for the little guy. Uh, I remember you leading a, a protest on some people that were working for NatWest that were being extra extradited to to America. Tell us a bit about that, and 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 tell us about about how you've been a force for change well because because and i, I guess it comes from my dad if, if there's there was two things that my dad ever left me one was the fact uh, that uh, i was taught to sing by going to a choir uh, four days a week uh, but the second was a, the i guess a sense of duty which i got from him with his being a policeman and that is that when i ever see people who uh, can't stand up for themselves uh, then i'll stand up for them if i can 
Um, and I actually, the MBA, the MBA was only the start of it. I've, I've twice turned down a seat in the House of Lords, um, uh, which was the, the second time was a big mistake because the second time I would have been on the cross, uh, cross benches, which I could have coped with. Anyway, um, so how I got involved with that was because obviously I'm an international businessman. I've lived and worked in 110 countries worldwide. And uh, uh, the NatWest 3 were getting screwed. Um, and as it happened, I, I about four years earlier, um, uh, the uh, there was this there was this uh, new um, extradition treaty being um, negotiated with America. I say negotiated, you know, it was past the KY jelly and we'll stick it up, you mate. And um, I'm very good friends with with Alan Milburn, who was uh, Tony Blair's right hand man at the time. And I went to see Alan to talk about how we could stop this extradition treaty because it was an insidious treaty. And uh, we couldn't do anything about it until it got to Parliament. And uh, um, I, I went to see literally every, uh, uh, every person I knew, including David Blunkett and Baroness Scotland. And I told them exactly what was going to happen with the extradition treaty and exactly what I said was going to happen has happened. Right? And David Blunkett was very sanctimonious, as was Baroness Scotland. Um, but in fairness to uh, David, he has he has admitted that he screwed up completely and that uh, that he should have listened to what I had to say. So the NatWest three comes along, um, and uh, they were going to be extradited. And uh, so I thought, now this is wrong. So I got I tried to get the Institute of Directors and I tried to get the Chamber of Commerce interested, but they're zero interest at all. Um, they're all just prefects uh, looking after their own interests. And um, and so, uh, laughably, I ended up getting involved with Shami Chhatrapati uh, at Liberty. And if you'd ever said that, uh, I would even darken their door out of spat in your face because they were the complete uh, left wingers as far as I was concerned. And I built a team with uh, with Shami Chhatrapati and a bunch of other people, including Bob Geldof, Trudy Styler, um, and a load of other people, including Sarah Brown, actually Gordon Brown's wife. And I put 350 grand in, and we fought the case. We had a we had a march uh, from the which we started the IOD and ended up at the Home Office. Um, but we lost. We failed, you know. Uh, and they were extradited, and it was just the whole thing was ridiculous. And then the next one was Gary the Gary McKinnon case, um, which I got heavily involved with in Gary and and, and his mum, uh, and the rest of the team, and we succeeded with Gary McKinnon. Um, much to my surprise, Theresa May, who was then uh, Home Secretary, refused to have him extra extradited to the States. And then the next one after that was, uh, and this was where all, all my real problems came from. The next one after that was um, Babar Ahmed and Tayyid Hassan, who were, had been accused of being terrorists uh, by uh, the Met. And interestingly, at the time, John Stevens was, was head of the Met. And John Stevens is a very good friend of mine. And uh, they, in good old-fashioned Met style, they'd taken uh, Baba down the, down the station and beat the shit out of him. And he got a uh, big compensation power. And uh, that really pissed off the Met. So they went after him big time. But instead of sending the evidence to uh, the Crown Prosecution Service and prosecuting him in the UK they sent the evidence straight away to the FBI and the CIA, uh, circumventing the British justice system. 
And I thought that was completely wrong because if the guys had um, uh, committed a crime, then they committed that crime in the UK. And if they'd committed the crime in the UK, they should go to court in the UK. And if found guilty, they should go to prison in the UK. But the gutless Keir Starmer, who was head of the Crown Prosecution Services, hasn't got any better since that day to this. Uh, he wouldn't hear of it. And uh, um, so I ended up uh, taking a high court action uh, to prove that Keir Starmer, the Crown Prosecution Service, the CIA, the FBI, and the Metropolitan Police um, had lied. And uh, I succeeded in court, uh, but we failed miserably. And Barbara Ahmed and Tyler Sand were, were, were extradited to America, where they were kept in solitary confinement for about two years. Then Tyler was found not guilty of anything. And uh, Baba did a plea deal to get himself home, you know. Uh, and, and the thing that he admitted to doing was not a crime in the UK. Let's, let's fast forward, though, to the, to the current time, because you're building back up again now. I know you did a deal recently um, when we last spoke four or five weeks ago. Um, how are you building it differently uh, this time in terms of security, in terms of ambition, in terms of goals, um, uh, really, from what you've learned? Um, well, actually, what I've learned is that uh, the life that I used to lead was a crazy life, um, and uh, that the life that I now have is a way better life. I used to spend, before I got out of bed, every every morning a million and a half pounds a year. Uh, that was before I got out of bed. And I probably spent three and a half to five million quid a year, you know. And I mean, I lived an unbelievable existence. Um, and since 2012, uh, I've learned to live like a normal person. And, uh, you know, learning things like how to operate a dishwashing machine, how to operate a washing machine, how to clean your bathroom, uh, and what normal people all do. And, and one of the things that I've also learned is, is, is how to be much more careful with, uh, with the money. Um, and... Not careful that I'll still take, I'll still do the things that I've always done in the past. But, you know, there was a time when I couldn't have told you with half a million quid how much I had in the bank. Whereas today, I can tell you practically to the penny how much I have in the bank, you know. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's not very much at all. And instead of spending five million quid a year, I'd be amazed if I'm spending £100,000 a year. And, uh, and I've, as you say, I've just sold one of my companies for 125 million quid. Um, and I'm actually in the process of giving most of it away um, because I don't need the money anymore. Um, and I'm giving it to people who've, who've helped me in life, you know. And that, that tie to financial control that you uh, do personally, uh, uh, have you embraced that with, with your portfolio businesses as well, uh, in that you're watching the pennies and, and holding accountants very, very, very much so. I mean, the, all the businesses, the the, the businesses that I'm, uh, I mean, we spent, we don't spend. I mean, they're, they're as tight as a duck's ass in, in in terms of spending. I mean, uh, we've uh, every single one of the businesses, the, the 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 burn rate is zero. You know, well, it's not zero, but it, you know, in the good old days of the dot com, you were burning a million quid a month, and uh, no, we're not doing that anymore. Um, but, you know, I, I, I've been bitterly disappointed uh, in some business partners in the recent past and uh, because of their behavior. Um, 
and that's a real lesson uh, that uh, I haven't yet put in the book that I've just written. What what can possibly go wrong? Um, but you shouldn't. And this is a real lesson for people who are starting up. Just because people are your mates doesn't mean they're not going to screw you. And uh, I've been screwed by some of my very best friends, people who I've looked after and cherished over all the days. And the one thing that I insist on now, no matter how good the friendship is, is proper agreements from the get-go, shareholders' agreements, so that everybody knows what's going on. Because uh, I'm just not going to let that ever happen to me again. And it might not just be screwed over. It might come down to competency or them not having the skills that they need to perform their, their role in the group. Yeah, maybe. I wouldn't be as generous. <laughs> well, that, that, that leads me on to, to a, a more reflective uh, question, which is what advice would you give your kind of 30-year-old self if you could uh, if you'd go back and, and, and give that person the, the wisdom that uh, you have now? Stay in UK land estates for three, uh, three more years, make another 80 million quid. Uh, when Sir John Hall asked me to be the third shareholder in Newcastle United for a million pound, um, and I didn't care much for uh, the other two partners, uh, so I turned him down, and that cost that was 160 million quid. Um, I a great follower of uh, Rothschilds, Benjamin was it Benjamin uh, or Rupert? I can't remember the the original founder, and. And he, uh, when asked how he made his money, he he always said by selling too soon. And uh, so you know, thirty million quid in D one oils, uh, eighty million in um, UK land estates, one hundred and sixty million in Newcastle United. Um, it's it soon stacks up, you know. And the other thing that I would have done is I would have uh, looked after, um, I would have stashed some away, which is what the all of the liquidators thought I had done, but I didn't do. Uh, and I would stash some away for a rainy day because uh, in 2013, uh, there was a long period, I mean a long period of time, when I had absolutely not a penny to my name. And... Uh, I was going along to the local uh, steak night at the hotel and gathering up the waste T-bone steaks and putting them in carrier bags to feed my dog because I couldn't afford to buy the dog any dog food. And the dog was a lifeline to me getting better uh, because it got me out of the house. So I'm paraphrasing a bit. You've had some great ideas. You've not wanted to change any of the ideas. You've talked about perhaps a little bit less leverage, a little bit more caution, putting a bit away for a rainy day uh, along the way being more diligent with shareholder agreements and, uh, and partnership agreements. Um, it's, it's just really a bit more discipline and financial control over the good ideas that you've had, I guess. Is, is that, I'm not putting words yeah, in your I think, you know, I think that's, that, that, that's absolutely true. And, you know, and the main thing is, just, I mean, you know, the, the money that, that has gone through my hands has just been incredible, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't, I seriously have no regrets about it. I've loved every single second of my life. I've had a fucking great life. I am having a great life and I will continue to have a great life, you know. Um, I, I, I live in a, as you know, a, uh, an eight-bedroom, eight-bathroom shadow in a 
kilometre and a half of uh, river frontage, 20 minutes from Nice Airport. I live there six months a year. And the other six months a year, I live here on the Indian Ocean in, in Fremantle. And uh, it's just an absolutely fabulous life. And I don't regret a single piece of it. Do you think there are the same opportunities now that there were when you were younger? Um, are, you, are you still observing uh, profitable opportunities? Profitable things? The, uh, I was talking to, did you know Rob Giles? Uh, he used to be at Gartmore. He's now at... Uh, I don't know. So, I don't uh, know. Right. A big investor. Um, he uh, said to me, we had a long conversation. Well, I haven't talked to him for ages. Actually, he's got a house down in Moujon. Um I was talking to him the other day, and he said if he could, if he had a billion quid, he would buy up all of the uh, small cap companies on AIM and on the main market, uh, because he he says that as privately uh, as private companies, you can get double or treble what the market capitalization is of the companies. Coming back to your question. Is there the opportunities? I think there's always opportunities. There's always great ideas. And I'm right at the forefront of those great ideas as ever uh, with with hydrogen uh, conversions uh, and brand new pharmaceuticals that I'm developing here in Australia, where, by the way, in Australia, you get 43% cash back on every pound, uh, on every dollar you spend on research and development, not a tax incentive. It's cash. It will not go on forever. So get yourself to Australia. Um, and... Uh, um, yeah, so the, the, there is the point that there is there are opportunities. There, there's opportunities in technology, but the market's different to when we were kids. Because, for example, all of the brilliant guys that there are in China, and there are a lot of brilliant people in China today, young people who are hungry for a living. In the eighties, they didn't have access to the same information that we had, and now they have the access to that information, and they are even hungrier than we are. Right. And the other, the other thing that I find it infuriates me, particularly with uh, with big companies, you can't get anybody to do anything anytime. You can, you can go into them and say, "Look, I've got a new machine here. It it shits uranium and pisses gold, shits gold blocks and pisses uranium," uh, and you can build it for a hundred thousand quid, and the dick on, and the dick on, and the dick on for months and months and months, and then they turn you down, you know. Um, and so everybody seems to be frightened to make decisions these days. But are there opportunities there? Of course there's opportunities. There's loads of opportunities there. You've just got to have the balls to take them, you know. But there does seem to be a quagmire of uh, compliance and risk and regulation to go through. Uh, and it's as though governments and authorities want to try and protect investors against any little thing that might go wrong. Well, there's risk in business. There's risk in investing. You get things wrong. And, and I think... If you overregulate things, you'll just get people stopping trying. And these are the entrepreneurs, who are the, the job creators, the people that make the profits to pay the taxes to fund the NHS. Um, and if you make it more and more difficult for entrepreneurs to do that, they just won't bother or they'll go somewhere else. You just, have, you just have to, have to look, at, look at what's happened with the oligarchs. I mean, you and I are screwed at every turn. You know, you want to open a bank account with a foreign director on your board, takes you nine months, right? And you're screwed and nailed down every turn. But those guys, they've been allowed to, to do exactly as they please, you know? And it's only now, since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, that they're getting jumped on. But they've got away with it for years. And, and, and what has it done? What has it really achieved? Because the honest the honest business person is complying anyway. And, and, and the bandits are just ripping you off. And there still are today. They're getting away with it, you know? Costing, yeah. costing the world billions. Absolutely. 
Just, just to wrap up, Carl, if we could wave, wave a magic wand now and, and you could just fast forward four or five years, what, what future would you conjure up for, for yourself? If we're talking in five years' time, what will your life be like? I've got it. It's here. I'm in it already. <laughs> I'll be. I'm a bit like Bilbo Baggins now. To one more step, and I'll be out the show. I'll. Uh, I just. Uh, I want to continue just doing what I'm doing. I, I will be uh, continuing to help uh, startup companies uh, like yourself. Uh, I, I. I again like yourself. Anybody comes along and, and asks me for help, I give them it, and that's what I'll continue to do. I will continue to do that. Uh, I will not be. Uh, taking on huge businesses operationally, but I'll be helping teams of people to do that. And that's what I do today. And, and instead of owning 100% of the company, I own 10% of the company and I own 10% of 10 companies. So when it comes to it, it's the same thing anyway. I'm working a lot less and I'm happier than I've ever been. You know? Well, that's great to know. Carl Watkin, thank you. Uh, one of the more colourful characters on the, the business scene and uh, wish you all the best. Thanks for the plug. <laughs> Cheers, mate. <laughs>